My guest today is young and dynamic with an electrifying stage presence. He engages the audience with insights, ideas, and intellect. He first came on my radar when I interviewed him at a conference I was hosting. You know, it's often said that there are only two certainties in this world, death and taxes. I'd add a third to the list, pressure. And he's written a new book titled The Power of Pressure. And here's an interesting thing. He believes that pressure isn't your problem. And in fact, it can be your superpower. Now, before you hear from him, I want you to set your own stage for listening to this podcast. I want you to think about a time in your life where you felt you were under immense pressure, where the outcome really mattered to you. It could be extreme pressure due to the extremity of the outcome. You know, as Yoda said to Luke Skywalker, do or die, there's no try. It could be where the outcome could change the trajectory of your life, a new job, landing a big account, scoring the winning goal in front of a stadium full of scouts. The time in my life where I felt the most pressure was making payroll. I've been an entrepreneur my entire life, and for most of that time, I employed a lot of people. I felt accountable to them. And throughout my career, we had a good run. I almost always covered our expenses, and we promoted and paid bonuses. Life was good. But there was times when economic slowdowns or losing a significant client where my expenses were running ahead of my revenue. And during those times, I felt the pressure to sell more. And if I failed, I had the pressure of letting people go. And those are the times I regret the most in business. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. So to set the stage for this episode of Chatter That Matters with that moment of pressure baked in your mind, please meet the one and only Dane Jensen, the CEO of Third Factor. He's an acclaimed speaker and instructor at Queen's University and the University of North Carolina. He's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review and the author of The Power of Pressure. Dane, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you, Tony. It is uh, great to be here. Now, I often start with my life's guest story and what got you to where you are and where you're heading. But in this case, I think we have to reverse the narrative because I've asked my listeners to kind of set in their mind that moment of pressure. So I want to start talking right away about your book, where that insight came from, that in fact, pressure doesn't have to be a force, a headwind. It can be, in fact, uh, a tailwind, something that you can take advantage of. There's really this paradox in pressure, which is when you look at some of the physiological responses to pressure. So I was doing a lot of reading on uh, sort of the physiology, what happens physically when you get put under pressure and your body produces adrenaline and cortisol. And there's all this stuff that happens that is really not particularly well designed to a lot of the stressors that we have in our day-to-day world, working in an office, you know, doing cognitive work. Uh, and so a lot of the, the forces that happen internally, they're kind of aligned against us. Um, and that's what leads to choking and all that other stuff. And if you look at the research into mental health uh, and the whole discourse on stress and pressure, especially through the pandemic, most of it is profoundly negative. And the paradox is that I was trying to stack that up against the fact that when you look at the work that we do in sport, you know, what you see is that overwhelmingly, where do world records get set in the world of sport? They get set at the Olympics and the Paralympics. Why? Because there's pressure. And when you start to look at, you know, the environments where people perform at really, really high levels, right? Life-saving surgeries, uh, the Olympic and Paralympic Games, uh, you know, rocket launches, there is just huge amounts of pressure in all of these moments. And so I kind of got a little bit curious that, hey, you know, everything we read about pressure 
tells us that pressure and stress is this negative thing. And yet we find pressure in pretty much every single environment where people do exceptional things. So how do you square that? Right? How do you solve that paradox? And so that got me kind of interested in, well, what is it that makes the difference? And, and in these situations where pressure does fuel performance, how do people do that? How do they use pressure as fuel? Dane, I love what you used as an example with Kyle Lowry and the two types of pressure, the pressure of the moment and really what pressure is when it impacts your, your life. So one of the big things that I learned when I was doing the research for the book, just to give a little bit of a backstory, the way I wrote the book is I asked as many people as possible what's the most pressure you've ever been under? And then I would have them just unpack that, you know, tell me what made it so high pressure. Uh, you know, what did you do? Did that work? Did that help? Did that hurt? What did other people do? Did that help? Did that hurt? So I would kind of walk them through their highest pressure moment. And one of the things that sort of started to really emerge as I got into the project was this realization that there are really two very different types of pressure. And that the people that are best at pressure are what I, I came to call pressure ambidextrous, right? They can move back and forth between these two different types of pressure. And, and I think Kyle's story um, is such a perfect encapsulation of those two types of pressure. So he was sitting down to a press conference on the eve of game five of the NBA finals, the year the Raptors won the championship, up 3-1, heading into game five, the highest pressure period in his entire career. The team is on his back. His best friend has been traded so they can take a run at the championship. He's the de facto team leader. And he gets sat down at a press conference on the eve of a game that could deliver a championship for the first time to Toronto. And the reporter asks him what pressure means to him. And the story that he chooses to tell in that moment is he talks about his mom. My mom had to go through, you know, going to work, getting up at five in the morning and getting up and going to work and making me cereal, having a bowl of cereal, sitting in the refrigerator with some milk and being able to provide for me and my brother and my family. That's pressure. That's pressure to me. And I find it so fascinating. You know, this is a, a, a man literally going through the peak pressure moment of his life. When a championship is on the line, he's the person who's expected to deliver it alongside Kawhi. Um, and he chooses to talk about the long haul pressure that his mom and grandfather, uh, grandmother have gone through. We think about pressure as sort of this, this monolith, but it's, it's, it's very different when we're talking about our peak pressure moments, like having to win a basketball game or deliver a speech or do a job interview versus the long haul of pressure of caring for family, uh, of end of life care for parents, of all the stuff that happens under over months or years as opposed to, you know, minutes or hours. Um, so, so that really is an important distinction in my mind when we're talking about pressure. Danny, another story I really got taken up with was this Kurt Ronan, the Navy SEAL and the pressure he felt. In this case, it wasn't winning a basketball game or even, you know, working tirelessly to put cereal on the table. It was what happened when his team was under fire. You know, as a former U.S. Navy SEAL team commander, usually when I ask the question, what's the most pressure you've ever been under, people pretty quickly get one moment or one period uh, in mind. He had to pause for quite a while. You know, when he started talking, honestly, just the number of different unbelievably high pressure situations this guy has been in. You know, he finished his special forces training shortly after 9-11. Ten years later, he lost 25 of his colleagues in the single deadliest incident of Operation Enduring Freedom, which was a, a Black Hawk helicopter crash. Uh, he, he's been through a tremendous amount, um, Kurt. But this, the story he told, it, it was interesting. It had two parts. There was the actual mission and then there was the debrief. The, you know, the mission itself is unimaginable. I mean, under cover of darkness, uh, moving to take a land-based target about a mile in the distance, and they start taking unexpected enemy fire. And 
when he talked about this story, the, the thing that really made it out of all the things he had been through, the, the, the reason he chose this one is he said, you know, my team was a mix of SEAL team troops and reserve guard troops who had like two weeks of training. And so he said, I knew how the SEAL team would react. I didn't know what the reserve guard would do. When he kind of played the story out, he said, the number one thing when you're under that kind of pressure is you got to act. You have to make a decision. He said, because the longer that you delay, that you kind of hold that middle ground, the more uncertainty builds, the more people start to experience the cold creep of fear. That was his phrase, which I loved. So he made a decision and he called in these helicopters that were hovering 30 seconds behind them and and, and they you know rained down fire and, and they were able to take the target. The more interesting part of the story for him and for me was the debrief. Because in the military, they're very good at debriefing performance in their after action reviews. And so they sat him down and his superiors were actually quite critical in the after action review. You know, in their eyes, there was like two or three different decisions that Cronin could have made um, that, that would have made, you know, still accomplish the objective, but with less risk. And the way he framed this to me is he said, you know, Dane, that might have been the second or third best choice. But the fact that the choice was made, that made it the best decision. When we talk about, you know, uncertainty as a core driver of pressure, and particularly in those peak pressure moments, it's the uncertainty that is acutely painful most of the time. One of the big things that we got to wrap our heads around is find something I can control and immediately control it, right? The sooner I can make that pivot from a feeling of helplessness to here's something I can control and I'm going to take direct action, that's when we start to get out of the cave that pressure can put us in, and, and, you know, when we start to make progress. So, so that was Cronin's line, which I love. The fact that the decision was made, that made it the best decision. And, and I think about that a lot when I'm in sort of the, you know, the, the real peak pressure moments uh, uh, for me. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. You know, pressure is a universal human experience. Pressure kind of gets a bad rap. Right? It's seen as this sort of inevitable but nasty byproduct of life. It's this burden that we kind of have to tolerate, that we have to bear. Pressure isn't the problem. It's the solution. My guest today is Dane Jensen. If you ever have a chance to hear him speak, take it. He's that special and he's that good. In your book, you cite a quote from Scottish philosopher Thomas Carlyle, who cited, no pressure, no diamonds. What do you feel he meant by that? You know, my interpretation of that quote is that sometimes we think that pressure is this sort of nasty byproduct of life, like it sits with death and taxes. It's just this thing that you wish we could get out of, but we can't, like you can't avoid it. You know, the reality is that our experience, my experience through the book would tell me that like pressure is not just a nasty byproduct, it's an essential input into high performance. Like you don't get high performance without pressure. So much of pressure is about nuance, Tony. Like, I actually think there's a real polarized discussion around pressure. There is sort of like the hustle culture, which is like, you know, rise, grind, like smash it, get up at 4.30 in the morning. And then there is the other side of the equation, which is like, we need to protect everybody from pressure. And it's, you know, it, it leads down the road to mental health. And and I actually think that the real story lies in the middle, which is usually the case when you have something that's really polarized. The no pressure, no diamonds thing for me doesn't mean that pressure is unambiguously good because there is absolutely a dark side to pressure. I think everybody can think back uh, you know, to moments in their lives where the pressure they were under has created anxiety and has you know, led to sleepless nights and, and, and a lot of you know, things that, that didn't feel good at the time that weren't great. And what I take from that quote is it's uncomfortable and it's an essential input, right? It has to be there. And, and that's because you know, pressure is inherent in, in the human journey of growth and development. 
Like if I'm going to do things I haven't done before, I'm going to experience pressure. It's just, just part of the ride. And so I better know what to do with that. I better know how to channel that towards, you know, making diamonds as opposed to, you know, having it crush me into, into the scrappy. What you're suggesting then is different types of pressure. And you also say in your book that not only is there different types of pressure, in fact, each situation has its own fingerprint. I'd love you to explain a little bit more about what that means, because I think that I, for one, and I think many of the people hearing kind of just cluster all pressure as something that just tightens our chest and makes us anxious. Well, and I think the easiest way to, to, to back into this is to talk a little bit about the, the pressure equation. And the idea is that as different and unique as high pressure situations are, you know, in large part, they are all a combination of three main forces. And that's where the equation comes from. So, so pressure is this function of first importance. You know, how important we have decided the outcome of a situation is, is directly correlated to how much pressure we feel. You know, we don't feel pressure, you know, when we're doing something that doesn't matter to us. And, and there's a good flip in there, by the way, which is that, you know, hey, this podcast is called Chatter That Matters. Uh, I don't feel pressure if I'm not doing something that matters to me. And that's good, right? We want to be doing stuff that matters to us. So, so importance is the first thing that has to be there. The second thing that has to be there is uncertainty, um, because no matter how important something is to me, if I know how it's going to turn out, I'm, I'm not going to you know, experience pressure. And that's really at the heart of the equation is it's sort of importance times uncertainty. Uh, and then the third part is volume, which is just the sheer amount of you know, important, uncertain stuff I'm juggling at any one moment in time. And, and when I talk about each situation being a little bit unique, these three things combine in you know, quite different ways. You know, when I was talking about Kyle Lowry, I said, you know, broadly speaking, there's sort of two types of pressure. Our peak pressure moments, the exams, the athletic performance, something that has sort of a beginning, a middle and an end. And at the end point, the pressure is gone. It might be replaced by joy if I perform well. It might be replaced by regret if I perform poorly, but it's not pressure anymore. Right. It's something else at the end of this thing. When we are in those peak pressure moments, it's typically like a violent collision of really intense importance and a fair bit of uncertainty, right? Am I going to get the job or not? This really matters to me. And, you know, it's a 50-50 or worse, you know, shot. Am I going to, you know, pass the exam or not? Again, it's, you know, violent importance and uncertainty. Long haul pressure, though, typically is not like intense importance and uncertainty. It's usually grinding volume. It's like I've got a lot of reasonably important, reasonably uncertain things, and there's a whole bunch of them. And, and that's really where the pressure tends to come from over the long haul, right? It's like I've got this demanding job and I've also got young kids and my parents are, you know, getting older and all of that stuff, all that volume sort of comes together to create the grind over the long haul. And is there a way for an individual to even do some kind of gauge in their mind that sort of helps them compartmentalize or come to terms with the pressure based on those three factors? I think you want to know what's dominating for you in the moment, right? When, when, when people find themselves feeling overwhelmed or anxious in the face of pressure, I've started to use those three things as a little bit of a mental checklist. It's like, okay, so, and, and we can probably talk a little more about the tension inherent in all three of those, but, you know, importance can be out of whack in two very different ways. It can either be that I, I can't find the pressure feels hollow because I can't see how what I'm doing matters. But often what happens for most of us is that actually we're overweighting the importance, right? So, so we just can't get any perspective. We're right in the middle of it. And so everything feels life or death. It feels urgent. 
Um, with uncertainty, it is that age-old balance of, you know, <laughs> how do I control the things I can and how do I accept the things I can't? And I, you know, I, <laughs> no matter how many times we get reminded of that one, I feel like that is, you know, an evergreen issue uh, for most of us. Either we, you know, we abdicate direct action and we try to distract ourselves with things, th- things we think will alleviate pressure, uh, you know, like eating or going out for a few drinks or procrastinating, scrolling social media, or you know, we try to control everything and, you know, we end up spinning our wheels. Um, and then volume, I mean, you know, uh, a lot of times I think over the past two years, it's just the sheer weight of the number of tasks I've accumulated, the number of decisions that have landed on my plate. And so depending on which one of those is sort of driving the pressure for me, if I go, oh, you know what, this is an issue of just like the way I'm looking at everything is life or death. Well, then I'm going to go in with an important skill. Uh, if it's an issue of control where I like, I feel like I'm spinning my wheels and just trying to move stuff that can't be, okay, well, I'm going to go in with an uncertainty skill. If it's volume, then I'm going to go in with, you know, an approach that's really about minimizing volume. So I, I have found it a little bit helpful to just check in on each of the three and kind of go, where am I going to get the biggest bang for my buck uh, from taking action? And there's certain subjectivity to pressure. And have you found there's a correlation to the, you know, we're battling so many headwinds as a human race right now from you know, climate change and a softening economy, a war in Ukraine, that uncertainty is rearing its ugly sword. And maybe some things that are, that we might have just dealt with effortlessly in the past ramps up and it becomes a much more pressurized situation because the fact that we just feel like we're standing on shifting sand. It's funny when you look at importance, uncertainty and volume. You know, we hear repeatedly that we are living in unprecedented times and that there's more uncertainty than there ever has been. And, and I, you know, maybe, uh, I, I think if you went back to, you know, 1915 or 16 and, you know, the, the early years of the great war, uh, leading into the Spanish influenza pandemic, like, I, you know, are we dealing with more important, more uncertain things than at the turn of the 20th century where the, the global order was in jeopardy and there was a raging pain? I, I don't know. Um, I think it's kind of up for debate. I think what's not up for debate is, the way these events are framed and then communicated and therefore absorbed by all of us has changed dramatically. I think there's two things that have really conspired to really make things a lot harder to process for us. One is timescales have collapsed. Whereas we used to get, you know, news on newsreels that you would watch at the end of the week um, and then eventually down to maybe a newspaper that you would read once a day. Now we are reacting to all the uncertainty in the environment on a second by second basis. You know, what we know is the second you shrink timescales down, the more exposed you are to volatility, right? If I check my stocks 10 times a day, I'm going to be unhappy, you know, four to 10 times over the long haul. If I check my stock market returns once a year, I'm going to be happy 19 times out of 20. So I think we get more and more exposed to the volatility and uncertainty, the thinner we slice time, which is what social media is doing. It's what Twitter does. And you have a media ecosystem that is heavily incentivized to inflate the importance and uncertainty of every single thing that's happening around us. Um, you know, we are in an attention economy and the more I can make something seem incredibly important and very uncertain, the more people are likely to, to read it and to watch it. So. I think the way importance and uncertainty is being framed is really amplifying, you know, the effects of it. And, and then that all culminates in volume, which is just there is so much information volume um, that we have to contend with that, that our, our ability to sort of create a sort of, you know, a hygienic, quote unquote, environment from a pressure standpoint is 
is really challenging, you know, how to how to be really clear on what we want to consume from an information standpoint. So, yeah, I, it's a very long winded answer, Tony, but I do think the environment has a certain base load of pressure. And I think it's being magnified in a way that it hasn't been in previous periods where the world was going through this much uncertainty and importance. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. Now I'm feeling under some time pressure, but I'm certain we're going to get to what we need to go, which is the time to shift gears to find out how you can turn pressure into your superpower. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. A big shout out to RBC for RBC Upskill, powered by FutureFit AI. It's an extraordinary platform to help young people explore careers, build skills for the future, and identify job opportunities. It's free at rbcupskill.ca. Empowering today's youth for the jobs of tomorrow matters to RBC. Pressure is a fundamentally human experience. When we experience pressure as human beings, our heart rate increases, our respiration rate increases, our shoulders get tense, our pupils dilate. And you see, because pressure and our responses to pressure are fundamentally human, we can learn a lot when we study people who operate in high-pressure environments. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Dane Jets. He's a speaker professor. He runs a consulting company called The Third Factor, and he is a factor in terms of the business of doing business. Dan, in your book, you have this quote, the power of pressure can propel us to new peak performance and higher levels of development. We've touched on this, but start applying this to my listeners' world and say, here's some things that you can be doing and thinking about when you're feeling under pressure that might serve your to your advantage versus what I often feel pressure is, is just a nasty headwind pushing me back on my back feet. Let's just work our way through the equation a little bit. So, you know, you start with importance. Um, A lot of times when people feel overwhelmed by importance, uh, that's what leads them to choke, right? It's like we get overwhelmed by what's at stake. We zoom right in on what I could win or lose in the situation. All of a sudden, my self-talk changes, my physiology changes, and I can't access all of my capabilities. Um, I think the, you know, the, the thing that I want people to do with importance is to go, hey, I'm feeling this pressure. What I'm doing must really matter to me and really focus in on how what I'm doing is connected to my own growth and development. Right. Let's look at what I'm learning in this situation, how this is making me stronger. Let's talk about how I'm contributing as a result of tolerating this pressure. Let's really zoom in on how this pressure is bringing me closer to the people that I care about. So our ability to kind of take the pressure that we feel and go, wow, if I'm feeling this pressure, what I'm doing, it it matters to me. I'm connected with something that's important to me right now can be a tremendous source of fuel when we're in our high pressure situations. Uh, And our ability to channel that then and kind of go, okay, you know, this isn't me choking. This is about me doing something that's important to me, that's meaningful to me, about bringing meaning into my life and contributing back to the world. That's that's energy that we can actually do something with, right? That can feed motivation and purpose and drive, uh, you know, when we are in our highest pressure moments. Uh, so, so a lot of when we talk about the skills that allow us to use pressure, it, it's us really coming to terms with the fact that pressure is just energy. It's emotional energy. It's physical energy. Um, you can feel it in your body as like a crackling current. And we want to get ourselves to a really good answer to the question, okay, what is this energy telling me, right? Hey, it's telling me I'm doing something meaningful. And then what do I want to do with that energy? Where am I going to put it? Uh, because you can label that energy in a whole bunch of different ways. Uh, you know, some people might be familiar with the whole technique of anxious reappraisal, 
where when I feel the butterflies in my stomach, I can tell myself I'm anxious or I can tell myself I'm excited. You know, the label that I put on that physiological sensation, it actually changes the way I respond. So that's a lot of what we want to be doing is, you know, let's get the energy under pressure to the surface. Let's recognize it is energy. And then let's have a really productive answer to the question, like, what do I want to do with this energy? Where am I going to park it? Where am I going to channel it? We started off the interview talking about athletes. So, you know, when I think of Tiger Woods at the Masters, Sidney Crosby, the Olympics, you know, Venus and Serena Williams, some of the elite athletes, and you know that when they're under pressure, they rise to the challenge. Is that just an anomaly that a handful of people have or maybe have been coached with since they were kids? Or do you really believe that that's inside all of us? This is the, you know, the, the $10 billion question. And by the way, Tiger Woods is a great example of the two different types of pressure, right? Here's a guy who can really handle his peak pressure moments. But the pressure over the long haul, like his life is a bit of a, you know, there's a lot of disorder uh, <laughs> when it looks to sort of pressure over the over the long haul. So it's a very interesting, interesting example. But but yeah, listen, I, I think, Tony, not all of us can be, you know, Serena Williams or Tiger Woods. Um, there is a certain genetic component to this, right? Some people are born with ice in their veins and there's a certain amount of uh, sang froid that they have. And all of the data that we have from the world of sport is that, that, that you know, our ability to perform when it matters in sport, we talk about performance on demand, is a trainable skill, you know, within a certain genetic band, probably. But, but it's something that you can get better at, that you can train, that you can work on. And we actually have a fair bit of data um, coming out of the Canadian sports system on this. You know, if you look at um, the, the, the work that Own the Podium has done, when On the Podium came into being, which was really when Canada won the bid for the Vancouver Games, uh, one of the first pieces of data that they pulled was they looked at something called the conversion rate. And the conversion rate essentially uh, looks at, of all the athletes that finished top five in the world the year before an Olympic and Paralympic Games, so at like a World Cup or a World Championship, what percentage of those athletes convert that top five performance to a medal, to a top three performance at the Games? And when they did their original research, Canada was converting at 26%. And just to put that in perspective, Germany was converting in the 90s, and the U.S. converted at 104% in Salt Lake City, which means you know more people won medals than had finished top five um, the year before. Uh, and so one of the things that On the Podium really focused on was, hey, if you can finish top five the year before games, but you can't do it at the games, this is not a physical issue. This is not a training issue. This is about performance on demand. Can you do it, you know, uh, when the pressure is highest? And the results of that research where there's been a big investment in giving athletes and teams more direct, earlier and frequent access to mental training skills. And that investment, I mean, not just on the podium, but systemically, you know, our conversion rate is in the high 70s now. You know, we've taken it from 26% up to the high 70s in terms of athletes' ability to compete and get out their best in competition. And we won more gold medals than anybody in Vancouver after not winning a single gold medal in Calgary uh, in 1988. So, you know, you can train this stuff, Tony. I, I Again, you know, we can't all be, uh, you know, Serena Williams, but absolutely these are trainable skills. So how do I take my top five moments in life and then channel it to when it's of utmost importance? I mean, go back to your equation that I know it's in me. I know I'm capable of it. But when I the importance meter rises, I lose that confidence. I lose the swagger. I lose the conviction. 
Is there a secret to that? I wish I was uh, uh, a smart enough marketer to get this down to the three secrets to unlock pressure. You know, I think there are strategies. I don't think there's one secret, but I think there are strategies. So if you take importance, right? So when importance rises, and this is one of my favorite conversations in the book. Um, He's a a good friend of mine, a wonderful man, a guy named Johan Olof Koss, uh, who founded Right to Play. He's a four-time Olympic gold medalist. Uh, long track speed skating, widely considered to be the greatest long track speed skater of all time. And, you know, he talks about his experience at going into the Lillehammer Games in 94. Uh, and, you know, he's a Norwegian athlete going into the Norwegian Games in 94. He, he's under the most pressure, in my mind, you can be under in sport, which is, you know, you are a gold medal favorite. He was favored to win three gold medals at an Olympics in your home country in an individual sport. Right. Gold medal favorite, home country games. It's just you out there on the ice. And, and he talked about how in the lead up to the games, like he, he couldn't handle it. He, he broke down two weeks before the games. He was crying under a staircase in his hotel. And, and the way he described that moment to me is he said, you know, at that moment, the fear of failure was so great that it felt like failure at the Olympics would create failure for the rest of my life. And, and that's what importance overload feels like, right? It's like, this is not just an Olympic Games. This is a referendum on me as a person, right? This is the moment we learn whether I am a success or failure as a human being. And, and the way he talked about working through that, you know, he was lucky enough that he had his sports psychologist kind of find him under the staircase and, and she started talking to him. And really her job was just to break down some of that manufactured importance, right? So, so she talked to him. She said, you know, do you think the people of Norway, Johan, do you think at the end of the day, they care whether it's you or another Norwegian athlete on the top of the podium? And he said, he's like, you know, that's the ego question. Like, that's a tough one. I'm the reigning world champion. He said, but eventually I kind of went, ah, they probably don't care as long as the Norwegians on the top. And she said, okay, well, how likely is it that a Norwegian's, you know, going to win? And he said, oh God, we got the deepest team in the world. Like for sure. Okay. You know, that's one piece of importance. I am not responsible for the happiness of four and a half million Norwegians, right? This is not at stake here. And so piece by piece, They started to broaden his viewpoint because when we're under pressure, we zoom in almost entirely on what's at stake here. We need to be able to zoom out and go, okay, what's not at stake? Like, what are the things that are important in my life that will not change regardless of the outcome here? And so I think our ability to hold that something can be important and at the same time, there are not a lot of, there are a lot of things that aren't at stake here. It's that balance that is really critical. And so to come back to your opening question, I think the number one thing we got to be able to do is to direct our attention, what we are choosing to pay attention to in a way that is going to support performance. So if I notice that I'm overweighting the stakes and and inflating importance, I need to redirect my attention to see the other side of the weigh scale, right? What's the stuff that's not at stake? Because that's going to, you know, that's going to balance me out a bit. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Dane Jensen. Put him on your radar as he is one to watch. Dane, a few rapid fire questions and answers. Where did your love for human behavior come from? You know, I was lucky, Tony. I was born into it. My dad has a PhD in sports psychology. He's been the lead for mental performance for Canada's Olympic team. He's actually down in Argentina and Venezuela with our men's basketball team right now as I'm recording this. Uh, And my my mom was a counseling psychologist. So uh, I grew up the child of two psychologists, which, you know, led uh, to some really interesting dinnertime conversation. And when did you decide that this was your calling? That didn't happen until I was around 30. 
I had a very traditional business. You know, I went to, to business school. I went into management consulting. Uh, I was working for a strategy consulting firm in the UK, in London. I had started in Toronto and got transferred over to the UK. I had just made associate partner uh, at quite a young age. I hit a point where sort of two things happened at once. One was I got a call from my, my folks and they said, listen, we don't think you're interested, but we're going to sell the business. You, you know, any interest in kind of taking up the mantle of, of leadership and, and, you know, human performance. And the second thing was I had sort of hit a wall a little bit. I mean, maybe that's overstating it, but, but I had reached a point in the consulting world where you start to realize that doing great strategy work, having great strategy as an organization is sort of necessary, but not sufficient. Like you can do great strategy work and it has no impact. You can do mediocre strategy work and it has tremendous impact. And what makes the difference is ultimately people. And so it kind of brought me full circle back to this stuff. And, and, and that was a real sort of pivotal moment for me where I went, you know what, this is the stuff that actually really sort of elevates uh, performance, uh, you know, regardless of, of domain. And how much pressure did you feel taking over their business? Oh man, you know, I was, I was 20 eight or 29 at the time. And, uh, you know, I remember some early clients, you know, cause we had to do this tour, you know, here's Dane, he's coming back from London, he's taking over the business. And we had a couple very blunt. I remember one French Canadian client who was like, I'm not so sure about the sun. Uh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it was definitely, there was definitely an initial few years uh, where uh, uh, where I definitely felt the pressure. And third factor, this organization, you spend a lot of time helping organizations, the people who lead them build resilience. How does pressure and resilience work together? I think of resilience as a combination of how we bounce back when we get shoved off balance, our ability to perform under pressure and our ability to take setbacks and use them as sort of fuel for growth. And I think it's really pressure that creates the, the need for resilience. If there was no pressure, you know, we wouldn't have to talk about resilience. Um, so I think of pressure as sort of the first mover. It's the, <laughs> it's the sort of thing in the atmosphere that requires resilience. And then resilience is our ability to kind of take the energy under pressure and, and do something productive with it. For the people today that are living paycheck to paycheck, dealing with a lot of uncertainty in their life and much of it they can't control, inflation, uh, the cost of living. What's your advice to them? There's a ton going on that, you know, is not just pressure. I mean, there, there, there's pressure in there. There's also just stress. And those are kind of similar but slightly different concepts. I, I always talk about stress as watching a basketball game that you really care about and pressure as playing in a basketball game that you really care about. What are the places where I have a say in the outcome in how this goes? And am I choosing to avail myself of the opportunities to influence that outcome? Am I taking the kind of direct action uh, that ultimately is going to alleviate uncertainty to, to the degree that I can. You know, when it comes to the stuff where we're watching the game uh, and we can't do anything to influence the outcome, that is often the more corrosive. That stress can be more corrosive than the pressure uh, where we have influence. There really is only one next step, which is my ability to eliminate as much of that as I can, you know, be ruthless and going like, Hey, you know, is there a pressure I can take off my plate? Can I delete a couple social media apps from my phone? Can I turn off the TV a few hours a day at night so I just don't permit some of this, you know, stress in my life that I can't do anything about? And then there's my ability to let go. And again, this is nothing new, Tony, but I, I think those are really two of the most fundamental choices that, you know, that we have alongside, I really do think, you know, information hygiene 
and making sure that you're putting yourself in a position where you're not surrounded constantly by the stuff that is designed to spike your arousal and your cortisol and your adrenaline and all the stuff that goes along with it, I, I think is pretty important in times like this. Professor running a consulting company, accomplished and sought after speaker, lots on your plate and obviously, a, a, you know, spending great time with your family. So trying to find that work-life balance. What's next for Dane Jensen? You know, the thing that I've been really thinking about, Tony, and actually this was inspired by my wonderful sister, Carly, who uh, is an ER doc and, and is the chief at a, at a small hospital up in Uxbridge, Ontario. One of the things that, that she told me, which I, I deeply appreciated, but also got me thinking is she said, you know, we, we, we put your pressure equation up on the wall. And as a team, we use it as a bit of a touch base. They're using it as a team as opposed to as an individual. Where's our importance gauge right now? You know, are we overweighting the stakes? Are we disconnected from why we're doing, you know, what we're doing matters? And they'll talk it through as a team and, and think about how to support each other in keeping those three things in balance. I think Carly's really got me thinking about sort of pressure as a team sport. That's a little bit of where my mind is going, you know, for the next uh, the next book potentially, or at least the next, uh, maybe if I'm being a little less ambitious, the next, you know, the next article anyways. Uh, but yeah, starting to get really curious about sort of the team sport of pressure. You know, Dan, I always end my chats with my three takeaways. Very often it's focused on the journey versus just this incredible insight that you've had. But the first thing I want to say to you is... Uh, as a human being, as both a writer and I've heard you speak, that you have an incredible way with words. You know, things like referendum on me as a person, you know, that you just make people step away and see themselves, not just acting in the moment, but being part of a moment that's going to ladder to many more. So I, I just congratulate you for your way with words because it's, uh, you're not there to try to come off as the smartest person in the room. You're trying to come off with, I have an idea that I want to share and I hope you can grab onto it. I love the idea of the sense of zooming out, which is kind of building on that remark where you're, we get again, so caught up in the friction and the tension and the, the buzzing energy, but just taking the time to step back and see the scenario unfolding is a great way to turn that energy into something more positive versus something that might at the moment feel uncontrollable. And then the third thing is just pressure is energy. And when you think of it as energy, it can either be positive or negative. And so much of it has to do with how you approach it. That formula of time, uncertainty, and importance. I think that's a formula we can all apply to our life. So thank you, Dane, for joining me on Chatter That Matters. Uh, thanks for the conversation, Tony. It was great. Really appreciate it. Joining me now is Lisa Mello. She's the Vice President of Learning and Performance at RBC. Lisa, welcome to uh, Chatter That Matters. Thank you for having me, Tony. What are you doing to offer the people that work for you, not just the skills they need to do their job, but skills that they can use for the balance of their life to kind of come to terms with how fast the world's changing? Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, the accelerated hybrid learning and digitized strategies. Um, and you'll know we all moved overnight from many learning programs delivered in person to pretty much every program being delivered virtually. And not surprisingly, you know, we're seeing online demand usage of learning platforms growing exponentially. So we're investing more in learning platforms with moduality, such as microlearning. Uh, we're exploring more VR and AR solutions and podcasts, for example. Um, in addition to delivering this learning on whatever device is convenient uh, for our employees when it's convenient for our employees. So the show that today I did was with Dane Jensen. And what I was fascinated about was his new thinking and his new book about pressure. 
How do you feel about what he's saying? Because you're an organization, obviously, that's doing so much in so many different areas. And with those initiatives come pressure. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Or is it a combination of the two? I agree. It can be uh, a good thing, you know, so long as uh, that it doesn't, uh, you know, turn into, uh, into more pressure. You know, I think of myself as an employee. And knowing that I have some flexibility, that I have become resilient throughout the uh, the, the pandemic, I, I think you might agree. You know that we've all become more resilient than we thought possible. So I think as long as you're very deliberately uh, using pressure in a good way, it is a good thing. Another question I have because I'm so fascinated by how fast this world is is changing. You mentioned AI and VR. How does learning keep pace with a world that seems to have no limit to its pace. You've probably heard this before, Tony, about skills as a new currency, and the future of work is skill-based. So we are investing in future skills, um, you know, particularly core human skills, uh, core critical technical skills development. You know, so we are supporting this culture of continuous learning, um, nurturing a growth mindset, um, and enabling regular development conversations between managers and employees. Um, So our goal is to ensure employees have access to relevant and timely learning experiences so our employees can learn as fast as they desire, you know, as the world continues to evolve. And this ranges from on-demand learning platforms, webinars, programs, and immersive social learning programs. We want to make it fun to engage. Um, So using gamification, uh, badges, leaderboards. What is RBC doing to help create those rungs for the youth leaving university and know that they have corporations and organizations out there that really want them to climb aboard? Uh, We have many initiatives and programs to support, you know, our focus on attracting young talent and, you know, as you say, to enable them to thrive in this new world of work and to unlock their potential. So, for example, in the tech space, you know, we partner with a number of organizations such as Toronto Women in Data Science, uh, Black Professionals in Tech Network, uh, the Vector Institute to bring research and events to the tech community uh, across Canada. Um, you may have heard we have a very successful program called RBC Career Launch, and this is in its 10th year. Uh, This is a one-year paid internship uh, for 100 recent college and university graduates, you know, helping with that transition from school to work. There's a great podcast I did with Steve Cadigan, I'll send to you, and he talked about, you know, the role of organizations is not how long I can keep them, but to make them better when they leave you. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, gone are the days where, you know, somebody left, they were dead to us, right? Like, we really want employees that leave us to come back. And they bring with them such new experiences and, and skills. And, and we realize that you know, jobs are no longer for life, right? Uh, it's okay for people to come and go. And that we get the value from them while they're here and we provide them value um, so they can be successful. I mean, that's been a shift. Lisa Mello, Vice President of Learning and Development at RBC. Thank you for joining me on Chatter That Matters. Terrific. Thank you so much. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.